tonight on Arena. Jan Carson on her new novel, The Raptures, and we preview the new BBC series, Andy Warhol's America. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. What better news on the first week of 2022 than a new novel from Jan Carson? The Raptures is set in the small fictional Northern Irish town of Ballylack in the early 1990s. The book focuses on the 10-year-old Hannah Adger, whose summer is thrown into disarray when her classmates start succumbing to a deadly and mysterious illness. It explores how tragedy can both unite and tear apart a small community. Jan's last novel, The Firestarters, was awarded the EU Prize for Literature in 2019. She's been shortlisted for the Sean O'Fuelon Short Story Prize in 2016. And in the same year, she won the Harper's Bazaar Short Story Prize. Delighted to have Jan Carson join me on the programme this evening. Happy New Year to you, Jan. Thank you, Sean. Happy New Year to you too. I see, and I read that you have said that The Raptures was the book that you'd wanted to write for 20 years. Now, that list of awards will give us a, give us a sense that <laughs> you've been busy for the last 20 years. But why have you wanted to write this book or what has stopped you writing it? Tell us about that particular aspect. Well, I think this is probably the closest to home I've ever come with my writing. It's it's set in a fictional village outside Ballymena where I grew up and it very much deals with the world I grew up in. And that's scary. Um, you know, the closer you get to home, the harder it is to write honestly and with balance and nuance. So I guess I have tried to write this book a number of times over the years and always felt I'm not quite ready for it yet. It was coming out bitter or it was coming out rose tinted. Um, and it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I felt ready and mature as a writer to take it on. Yeah, so you wanted to avoid either, uh, you, you just wanted to avoid a simplistic portrayal of your own community in many ways. And I guess that's what that is, what is at the heart of the book, really, particularly in the in the character of the young person of Hannah. She lives in, in a community and particularly in a family who are evangelical Protestants. You might explain the nature of that community and the importance of faith to, to Hannah and her family and to people in that community. Well, I think, you know, Protestant culture has been explored quite a lot in, in art across the island. Um, but there's not been an awful lot of exploration of that kind of particular, you know, what you might call a born again kind of culture where, you know, faith goes really deeply into people. They believe it. They live their life by these standards. It's their moral compass. It's their community. And, and yet, particularly up here in the north, it's still there's still a huge community of evangelical Protestants um, and um, that's the community that I grew up in and I'm still on the peripheries of. So I, I wanted to write about that. And, and give us a, the specifics of, did you feel, you said the Protestant culture has been written about, did you feel your particular type of Protestantism was underrepresented or was easily dismissed or what was the story there? I think it's just, it's a, a really hard community to write about because, you know, there, there's lots of issues. For example, you know, I grew up with real distrust of art in the kind of theology that I grew up with. So it's hard to write about that community from within it. In the same way, it's hard to write honestly about conservative um, Muslim communities or conservative um, Hasidic Jewish communities. As soon as you begin to question and to critique, um, you know, a lot of people have moved outside of the community by that stage. So I think partially that's why there's not been a lot of honest writing. You know, if you do go back to things like Sam Hannibal's December Bride, which is one of my favourite novels, you know, there, there are explorations of that faith-driven kind of community further back, but maybe not so much in contemporary writing. And, and I suppose Hannah and her family are very typical of this particular style of evangelical Protestantism in that the Bible is hugely important, the pastor is hugely important, and maybe the title of the book, The Raptures, gives us a sense of, of the nature of mm. the almost the giving over to religious and, and almost a, a kind of a, I don't know, obsession. I'm looking for, searching for that word where you're, where you're consumed by something almost. Yeah, well, you know what the rapture is. Well, that's what I'm going to do. Why don't you explain it? Um, so the, the rapture within kind of evangelical Protestant language that I grew up with, it's that idea that the elect, the kind of God's chosen people will be lifted out of the world before the really bad stuff happens at the end of the world. So I was always terrified as a child, if you came home and there was nobody in the house, you'd be like, oh crap, the raptures have happened and I've <laughs> and been it wasn't left about. behind. <laughs> uh, so it's a double play kind of on that. 
Yeah, but but just tease that out a bit further for me. Then did that leave you growing up, and does that leave the the characters in your book? I suppose in many ways, does does it leave them with that sense of being saved? No matter what happens, we're going to be okay. I think so, and I think that's what Hannah's coming to terms with. You know, she's on the cusp of a lot of things in this novel. She's about to move to big school. She's having this traumatic event in her life where it's causing her to question this certainty that she's had until that point. You know, it's a it's quite a simplistic faith in a way. You know, we are the chosen, and we will be grand. And suddenly, Hannah isn't so sure of all of those things. She's beginning to question stuff. Um, and I think writing in the from the perspective of a child allows you to ask those big questions in a really honest kind of um, almost non-cynical way. Um, and that I think that's mm. probably why I'm drawn to writing children quite so so much. Uh, the other aspect of this, I suppose, is how would the evangelical Protestants be viewed within the, the broader, the wider Protestant community? Um, I mean, I wouldn't like to kind of make sweeping generalizations, mm. but, you know, they're, there is a kind of wariness sometimes there. They're a very, very easy community to pastiche. And that's something that I wanted to avoid desperately with this novel. I want it to maintain nuance where, you know, there's critique there for things that need to be critiqued. And I think for me, the role of women is perhaps this, this, the biggest thing that's critiqued in this novel. But I also wanted to celebrate some of the beautiful things about the community, the kind of sense of, you know, caring for each other and um, providing and being kind. And those are all values that I grew up with very strongly. So I, I wanted that balance there rather than a pastiche. Yeah, and I suppose the, the other side of it is with uh, in terms of this community, you're looking at uh, a group of young children who are all, becoming very ill and dying very quickly. But Hannah sees the people who die immediately afterwards. There's a magic realism involved in it. And that's been a that's been a, a, a trademark of your work from, mm. from the very start. Do you think that's linked in in any way to your background in, in evangelical Protestantism? Okay, I often say that my first church experience was a two-year sermon series on the book of Revelation and there's nothing more magical realist in the world than that. Um, I think it's a dangerous thing to expose a, a young writer to, um, you know, the horsemen of the apocalypse and the, the beast and all of those things. It was just conjuring lots of imagery in my head. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that's that's been there from very early on for me. But I was particularly interested in this. Um, this is a, a kind of it sounds almost Presbyterian because there's three points and they all um, have alliteration. <laughs> but I was really interested in how the kind of the mythical, the magical and the miraculous interplay in a lot of Northern Irish culture. So, you know, in church backgrounds, we're quite often comfortable with miraculous elements. And we also have this bedrock of kind of mythology and folklore and it's practiced here in the novel and there's there's a cure, there's a rag tree. And I wanted to chuck in the magic element as well, just to unsettle things. But the three of them all kind of talk to each other within the book as well. Yeah, you, you might talk a little bit. So at, at the one level, we have a, a, the Hannah and her family who would very much be faith based. And there's a sense of, well, leave it to the Lord and the Lord will look after his own. There's there's a sense of that going on in how they're approaching things at, at, at one level. Um, then we have this raggedy tree. Uh, explain what that is. It's, it's a rag tree, which you'll also often find beside holy wells, um, you know, where people go to almost um, make, you know, they tie on a piece of material that's um, associated with someone they want to pray for, make a wish for. I mean, they're interesting to me because now in, in Ireland, they're, you know, almost entirely associated with Catholic um, mm. sites, but they're actually pretty Christian. So you often find in these kind of um, they, they sprout up in places that are associated with kind of almost pagan times. Um, and there is one of these just outside on the outskirts of Ballylac, which um, gets drawn into, you know, people's response to this tragedy. You know, they do turn to religion and prayer, but they also turn to some of the older ways of dealing with things as well. And, and was that a place that, I mean, Hannah in the book is... Uh, it, is not really allowed. It's considered to be an occasional sin to be going near this raggedy tree. In yeah. fact, in any way, shape, or form, was that something that you would have experienced growing up? To was it was it oh, out of yeah. bounds? Absolutely. You know, there was a real fear of it. It's mentioned in the novel, isn't it? You know, letting the devil have a foothold. Um, anything to do with kind of Halloween or magical practice or things like that. 
And yet I did find when I was doing research for this this book, I did find within kind of rural Presbyterian culture a real kind of use of cures. Mm. So you would get these older men and farmers who were, you know, desperately kind of afraid of anything magical, but they were, you know, rubbing a potato and burying it in the backyard. <laughs> so I, I'm interested just in that interplay and how how we've kind of rationalised things sometimes. Yeah, because um, I'm interested that you said that that's there in the Presbyterian uh, culture as well, because I, I would have thought the cure was a particularly Catholic thing too, but from what you're saying, no. No, not not in the community that I grew up in. I talked to a number of farmers that, that told me about cures for this and cures for that. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of those things even predate our mm. idea of kind of organised religion. Yeah, uh, so, so possibly possibly that's part of it. That's there. You mentioned the devil along the way there and that that, that might be the very boy that would be hanging around the raggedy tree or who'd be trying to <laughs> lure you into his ways out that part of the way. Jerry Adams doesn't come out of the book too well, does he really? The backdrop here is, is, is the troubles to the novel, obviously. Yeah. And Jerry Adams often described as the devil, maybe even worse. <laughs> Uh, you're you're putting words in my mouth. Um, Hannah, uh, Hannah's just reflecting kind of what she's heard from adults right. and and spilling it back at us. But I think it's an interesting point. It is it's set in 1993, and the the troubles are still there in the background. But I very much didn't want to write a troubles novel, and it would have been very easy to write a, a major incident to explore how the village responds, which was you know a bomb or a shooting. Yeah. And it's very much not that. It's more an exploration of how small rural communities respond to a tragedy. And I think in that way, it could be paralleled any small rural community anywhere in the world, really. But given that uh, those are words that Hannah utters and maybe she is repeating what she what she has heard, would that reflect the sort of uh, attitude that would have been in, in Ballymena for you when you were growing up? Okay, thanks. I think so. You know, whenever I was born in 1980 in Ballymena, and it was still a very strong Paisley town in those days. And, you know, I often joke about um, there was a big sign when you came in that said Ballymena still says no. And we were so terrified of dancing was the big sin back then. I thought it was a reference to line dancing <laughs> until I was quite, quite old. So, you know, that those, you know, I think those attitudes have changed a lot now, but it, it, that was the environment that I grew up in very much so. The other thing that it's, and, and this is, I've, I've had this experience on several occasions in the past two years, particularly in the case of novel writing, because it's not something that you do in, in a few weeks, you sit down and, and start to write a novel <laughs> and suddenly it's there. You, we are dealing with a, a, a plague, if you like, in some ways, yeah. or an illness that's striking these young children. There's a desperate search for an antidote, you know, not too far, but big a distance from a vaccine, I suppose, in, in some ways. Uh, but yet you were writing all of this pre-pandemic, before there was any mention of COVID. Uh, it's terrifying, Sean, because um, I handed it the final draft of it in November 2019, and it started to come a bit true about two weeks after that. And some similar things happened with the fire starters of you know things there mm. began to kind of uh, manifest themselves in Belfast quite soon after it came out so a little bit terrified that I've either got a prophetic gift or some kind of curse I'm not no, sure that, maybe there was a magic realism at work there but you have said that magic realism is a way of writing about a community uh, I, I suppose about the socio-political situation of a community mm. but it's a, it's a kind of an oblique way of approaching it does it is that did that make it easier to write this book about Northern Ireland but in a kind of a sideways look on I think so and I think for me my use of the kind of magical and the fantastical is always to grab the attention of the reader and to maybe shake them out of a story they think they've heard before. And I think mm. another another thing that happens in, in The Raptures, I'm always keen to say this, like it is quite a funny book as well. Which <laughs> it is, yeah. You talk about a plague and evangelical Protestantism, it doesn't scream humour. <laughs> but humour is another way that, you know, you try and arrest people. You, mm. you think you know Presbyterians, but actually they can be quite funny sometimes yeah. is as that well. you Is that you gurning at me then? Is that the way I'd yeah. have to put that? Because we have, we have lots of, I suppose, well, it's essentially Ulster Scots in the midst of all of this, Garnin and Thran being some of the words that 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 spring out to mind. Was it important to, to you for you to have that kind of colloquial aspect to the language as well? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's actually really freeing because that's the way I speak. Um, and it's just, it's so freeing to be allowed to do that mm. in literature and to, you know, quite often I think we have apologised for our language in the past. We've explained things and contextualised things for readers outside of Ireland. And you don't get that with writers around yeah. the world. They just get on with using their own words and expect people to understand them in context. Yeah. So, Hopefully this is the revival of, uh, you know, Balamina lyricism. I don't know. <laughs> Balamina lyricism. That'll be a new genre of fiction before long, if you, long if you have anything to do with it, Jan. And finally, I, I think it's beautiful that the, the Raptures, the book, opens with a nod to Lear McKee in the quote, it won't always be like this. It's mm-hmm. going to get better. Was it important to you? To, I mean, that's a very, was, was it a direct nod in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I I had that essentially, and it's been interesting a few friends have pointed this out, it is a book about our young people and the expectations that we've put on, you know, the generation that, that came next, that they are going to change the future and make everything okay here. Um, and I, I wanted, I had Lyra in my head quite a lot when I was writing it. So I, her partner, Sarah, gave me permission to include that. And I was very gracious of her. But, I'm, you know, I hope I hope I've done her justice, um, particularly the, the last chapter. I want it to end on a hopeful note. I don't want to give any spoilers, yeah. but. Yeah, um, there, there is yeah. hope. There is hopefulness there. Jan, lovely to speak with you. Congratulations on the book and hope to see you soon. Thanks, Sean. That's Jan Carson speaking to us about her new novel, The Raptures, which is published this week by Doubleday Ireland. Well, the shortlist for the RT Choice Music Prize Irish Album of the Year was announced earlier today. Another exceptional year for Irish music. list includes music from across the genres, including traditional and folk, hip-hop, electronica and contemporary pop. Most, if not all, of the acts selected have featured on this programme during the year at some point along the way. Delighted to have such terrific quality on the show, obviously. We'll tweet a link to the full show shortlist of nominees if you want to take a look uh, at RTE Arena we'll give you that link but joining me now is Simon Marr to take a a look at uh, the specifics of the list and maybe give us a a, a few of his own predictions how healthy are we if you look at that list in particular uh, when we look at people like Houseplants Soda Blonde Villagers Kojak etc etc how healthy a state are we in uh, when you look at that Simon I think we're in a good place at the moment. The, the one worry that I've had about the fact that musicians have become very prolific in the absence of live music, musicians have become really prolific about releasing music. And the worry that you would always have is that you would end up with patchy results. But over the course of the last 12 months in the Irish music scene, there have been the 10 albums that are listed are all good. There's none that you would look at and say, I'm not sure that that makes it. That's filling things in a bit. But there are easily another 10 albums that you could name that could also make the list. And I think that's a pretty good barometer of the health of the scene at the moment. Right. Well, um, let, let's play a bit of music. Will we go to, to Houseplants? And, and this is from the album Compañero. Uh, oh, sorry, this is Compañero is, is the track. Um, how, how, how well do you think? Uh, is this your prediction, actually, from the, from the album list? Or are you prepared to do that? I'll, I'll, I'll do my predictions at the end, but oh. I, I, I think this is a particularly strong album. Right, well, let's have a listen to House Plants. I must try to keep it together. Two hands on the steering wheel, keeping an even key. Compañero, the title of the track there from the album Dry Goods from Houseplants and Houseplants uh, and Dry Goods, one of the 10 albums nominated in this for this year's Choice Music Prize. Simon Marr has been taking a look at, at the list for us. Um, not a sign of lockdown, not a sign of people being uh, in any way being introverted or being pulled into themselves by that. Do you think that's reflected across the, the list of albums, Simon? Do you know, I think if, if anything, we've learned more about melody in the last few years. And it seems that almost melody went out of fashion for a while. But now it really, really is back. And you mentioned at the start about how the album encompasses a lot of different genres across hip hop and traditional mm. into, you know, the more pop sort of stuff. But there just seemed to be an awful lot of melody going on. And it's making for really good, very, very listenable and very, very accessible albums. That's great. 
Yeah, um, any other highlights? Just a couple of highlights from the list of 10. As I say, we've tweeted the full list of 10 rather than just call them all out because you won't remember any of them. Give us, <laughs> give us a couple of your highlights from that list of 10. I think ones that ones that really, really stick out has been particularly good. Villagers uh, Fever Dreams is a really, really excellent album and Mick mm. Flannery and Susan O'Neill's uh, in the game as well. And I know that you had them in uh, in for Arena too. You know, these are really, really good, really strong albums. And But there's others as well, like the Kojak's album, Town's Dead. That's really, that's sort of an, an anthem of our time as well. And Soda Blood and Saint Sister too. Like, you know, these are all albums that will be around that people will be listening to in three or four years' time. Uh, all right. Um, were you disappointed? I know when you were in with us, uh, was it just after Christmas or just before Christmas? Now I can't remember. Recently. Uh, oh, recently. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, Tales of Coachlin was your Irish album of the year, the Cahill Coughlin uh, uh, album. Were you disappointed not to see it there? I was there, was. there was two albums that I thought would would make the list and I thought Songs of Coaklin would, would make it into the list because as I, said, I think it's particularly good and Fears, Iha as well, which I thought was another, definitely one of the albums of 2021. But I suppose when it comes down to it, when you have had a year of very, very good albums, you know, in the end it's going to come down to the list of 10. Everybody will argue about the 10 and God knows come the night of the 3rd of March when we're all hopefully in Vicker Street uh, to see the winner being announced, we'll all argue about the winner then. The other thing that really struck me when I looked across the list is these these are all relatively young artists. I mean, they're, maybe you could argue that some of villagers maybe in a kind of a, heading towards a mid-career if Conor <laughs> O'Brien doesn't kill me for that particular uh, analysis of where he's at. But, you know, they are artists at, at very much at, at an early point in their career rather than artists who are at the end stages, if you like. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I don't know if that's a deliberate thing mm. or it just happens to match in with the way that things were were released this year. You know, because we made, we played the bit there of uh, of houseplants, and probably Paul Noonan is probably the veteran of the entire list, having been around with Bell X One since the mid nineteen nineties and Juniper before that. But for the rest, it's a lot of pretty pretty young artists who are just releasing very good records. Yeah, and I suppose you're inclined to think of even when you think of Paul Noonan, you don't think of him as being has been I suppose well into a middle stage career really at this point you just think of these these guys as creating young and vibrant music Mm, absolutely so and that's the thing and him getting involved then with Dahi for Houseplants as well mm. it's, there's, a, there's a lot of movement there's a lot of progression uh, within the industry and within the scene as well and that, that's, that's a real positive for this year Yeah but would, would you like to have seen the likes of Christy Moore or maybe some of the more established artists in there as well? Do you know, and it's funny because Christy Moore was one in particular that I was thinking of, but there was there was a few that you go back on. But I think possibly a lot of it is just, it's just the nature of releases. It's just how releases happened, you know, as in, you know, I, I would have liked to see maybe somebody uh, like Kat Dowling maybe make it in as well, you know. But there was like, there was albums like Christy Dignams as well. And speaking of Bell X1, like Brian Crosby or something like Adrian Crowley as well. So there's all sorts of people who could have made it in and are very, very worthy of, of the list. But I have a suspicion it's just a reflection on the releases in a snapshot in time more than any particular decision that's been made. All right. Are you trying to get off the hook, by the way, by predicting two winners? <laughs> Look, if, if I was a gambling man, Sean, and I had 50 pence uh, to put on it, uh, I, I was going for either Villagers or the Mick Flannery, uh, Susan O'Neill uh, album. But if I'm being pushed... Oh no, 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 don't don't let me push you just yet. Or well I will push you okay. but in, in, in a slightly <laughs> indirect type of way. Well, if we were going to get your final prediction at the end of this item, uh, uh, item and I wanted to play a track from that album then, which of the two albums would I play now? As in which is the one that you're not predicting is going to win? Uh, I am not predicting, I think, uh, that uh, villagers won't win. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that villagers will win and um, you know what I'm just going to play a bit of villagers because that's way too confusing
So a little bit of uh, villagers there. Uh, ultimately, uh, I'm sorry. You know that I put you to making that prediction for us, Simon. A little bit ahead, of, a little bit ahead of time, uh, because it is a very strong list, and I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we played um, villagers and we played house plants. I mean, the, the representation across genres, across genders, everything here is very even-handed. I would have thought. So, and there's an album that I mentioned when I was doing my uh, highlights of the year, Orla Gartland's Woman on the Internet, which is, a, again, a particularly strong album. But, you know, I think if I had a, a sneaky each way 20 pence, I wouldn't mind putting it on uh, Soda Blonde's Small Talk as well, which I thought was, a, was another particularly good album of the year, or even Bicep. Uh, Biceps Isles as well, with the, the couple of singles that were taken from it, uh, are two definitely of the strongest songs right. of the year. Anyway, and we'll see. They may they may sneak in there uh, when it comes to the to the judging room on the third of March. Yeah, and of course the the songs will come out at a different point. There will be ten songs chosen uh, as well. But I see now that you've predicted yeah. four of the ten are going to win it. Talk about pegging your bets, Simon Mark. <laughs> at any rate, happy. Come new- back to me next week. And yeah. I'll do it again. I'll do the others. <laughs> okay, you do the other six. Thank Thanks for speaking with us this evening, Simon. That's Simon Marr there speaking to us about the shortlist for the RTE Choice Music Prize Irish Album of the Year announced today. The winner will be announced special event in Vicar Street, hopefully on March the 3rd, broadcast live on uh, 2FM, followed by a highlights programme on RTE Television the following week. Good luck to everybody. And we have tweeted up the entire list uh, for you if you want to have a look at it and go through it at a little bit more with a little bit more leisure. At RTE Arena, you'll get the 10 albums there. Andy Warhol's America is a three-part series looking at the history of 20th century America through the life and career of Warhol. The series covers major historical events, tells the story of Warhol's response to what he saw happening around him on TV and in the newspapers. Friends and biographers, fellow artists, including Jerry Hall, Bob Colicello, Penny Arcade, Bianca Jagger, Victoria Barkers, Jeffrey Dishich, uh, share inside sights into what was happening at the time and how Warhol both glorified and critiqued American culture. Jess Fahey has been watching the series for us and, and she's with me in, in studio this evening. I, I suppose that what you wonder with Warhol is how can you approach a topic like Warhol? You know, it's, it's been so documented in many ways, Jess. How do you approach it in a different way? And it struck me here we're getting almost Andy Warhol as a history painter rather than Andy Warhol as a pop artist with the Campbell Soup can and Marilyn Monroe and the Coke bottle and all the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing that's most interesting really about this series is because if you think about it from a sort of art historical point of view, he's usually sort of seen as the opposite to the old masters. And within the old master tradition, the best you could be would to be a history painter. And history painting tends to be religious subjects, mythological subjects or historical events. Whereas uh, usually, as I say, when we look at Andy Warhol, we don't see him that way. This series presents him as a history painter by intersecting elements of his career with the history of America. Mm. And it's very cleverly done. Yeah. And and that aspect, um, does it give us, I suppose it starts with uh, uh, Warhol in, in Pittsburgh in in 1920 something 1928 he was born yeah. in wasn't it yeah and we get that family background and it's so different from this you know new york of the 1960s and the wildlife that all of that was it's a totally different person yeah i think i think that's the thing you kind of see through the series all of these contradictions both in terms of America and in terms of him himself. So his background was the son of immigrants from um, what's now present day Slovakia. And his father died when he was 13 and his mother was left raising three sons in severe and extreme poverty in the coal mining district of Pittsburgh. And he sort of has this determination to work and continues to work his whole life. He's a bit of a workaholic and first starts off with a great career as a commercial illustrator and then slowly but surely realises what he can do and how much more he can do and how he can create an entirely new version of himself. An illustrator, by the way, who at one point somebody gives us the statistic that in 1956 he was earning $100,000 per year. Mm -hmm. 
he was working hard to do that, but that was that, that's a phenomenal amount of money for in today's time. terms. Yeah, and for that time, extraordinarily so. Mm. So he already had the success and had, you know, um, pulled himself out of poverty and was being very creative, was very well respected in his field, but he wanted more. He wanted the fame. He wanted uh, money and money, money, money. So he was once asked what he loved most in the world and he said money. So this was <laughs> his you know, continuing drive and obsession. And I think it's why we have a sort of negative view of him sometimes because we're not so happy with the idea of an artist who's obsessed with money. No, it doesn't sound, doesn't sound like somebody we want to be talking about, but maybe that's our problem mm-hmm. rather than their problem. Um, but that that's uh, background. It's interesting to view the, the Campbell's soup can through that particular prism and I'll, I'll play a clip here it's Bianca Jagger I mean the name it's all it's a name drop every three seconds in this, yeah. in this series certainly in the first episode that I watched you know you constantly get the big names coming out and here she is talking about the influence of Warhol's childhood on his uh, on his career and the soup can gets a mention in here Andy was a unique character he looked different he acted different he spoke differently. We need to look beyond what is it that influenced him as a person. What was it in their childhood that made those images in the work they do? For example, his mother used to feed him soup. So he saw the soup. Many of the things that he painted were things that were in his home because he spent so much time with his mother. That's the Bianca Jagger there in a clip from the first episode of Andy Warhol's America. And that first episode is on BBC Two tomorrow night at, at 9pm. Jess Fahey, you, you've watched all three episodes, in fact, I, I think, have, Jessie. Yeah. Could, you, could you just not stop? I couldn't stop. It was just so interesting because I, I'd never really seen anyone present him that way. So you often have, you know, a kind of glorification of him by mm. those who see him as being the most important artist of the 20th century. But this has a way of sort of combining him quite cleverly with the way way that he responded to the America of the 20th century and how he's part of it and also a sort of a, a sort of opposition to it as well. Yeah, his pursuance of the American dream certainly is, is very much the story of the early part of, of episode one and, and getting to that phenomenal income for 1956 mm-hmm. of $100,000 per year. He seems to have, have got that American dream. But you, you're saying that for him, there was always something missing. And John F. Kennedy seems to be a big part of what was missing for him. It, it, Kennedy is brought in very, almost like a sharp cut into the, the storytelling as it's going along. And suddenly JFK is in front of us. What role does, does, does he play, do you, if, you th- if you like, in the aspirations of Andy Warhol? I think predominantly from a young age he was more interested in women so he had a, an obsession with Shirley Temple and mm. uh, later with Marilyn Monroe but I think the John F. Kennedy thing is you know a, a kind of showing you in a way that what we assume when we look at the 60s of being this sort of wild and free and kind of progressive place was actually really a place of horrendous violence and shocking events so his work as a kind of shock artist if you like is sort of a reflection of that but when he turns to John F. Kennedy as the subject he doesn't depict John F. Kennedy he depicts Jackie and he depicts her smiling before the um, assassination uh, standing at the funeral and then afterwards and he does it in a way where she's almost sort of presented as a kind of Mona Lisa sort of looking character Mm. but it's all about that kind of insight and that kind of personal um, response to the moment that he sees as having more mass and universal appeal than just showing a living John F. Kennedy so there's something very clever often with the images that he chooses to use it's not always the most obvious but it can often have more mass appeal which is what he was interested in yeah and and that mass appeal is very important in the various uh, the various even the Campbell soup tin obviously it is interesting to view it as coming from his childhood but if you think of the coca-cola the bottle of coca-cola which you, again mm. he's so associated with that let's have a listen uh, to what Jerry Hall Again, another name drop <laughs> has to say about his idea about the, uh, the the simple bottle of Coke. We can make you ice cream. We could be sweet tea melting in your vice dreams, boy. You could be watching TV, see Coca-Cola, and you can know that the president drinks Coca-Cola. Liz Taylor drinks Coke. And no amount of money can get you a better Coke than the one the bum on the corner is drinking. 
and day. <laughs> That's so good. Enjoy the refreshing it. for a Coke, ice cold Coca-Cola. And obviously in the midst of that, that's a clip from Andy Warhol's America, the new BBC series, which starts uh, tomorrow evening. We're uh, running over the three Thursdays, uh, yeah. I think, they, they, episodes one, two and three. Jess Fahey with me in the studio. But we get clips from adverts in the middle of it all. And it's not surprising that he came from that world of advertising, but he kind of turned it on its head when he when he went into, I suppose, a more serious artistic endeavour. Yeah, I think that's the thing that's fascinating about it as well, is that he is at once advertising himself. So he's using himself as a sort of commodity through using these images that are instantly recognisable. He has a tendency to pare an image down to its most instantly recognisable, which is what makes them so powerful and so strong. But he also is making a comment on imagery and a comment on art and what we allow to be art, what we consider art to be, uh, taking away that kind of... um, hierarchy Mm. but also I mean he's sort of responding as well to the popular art of the time which was abstract expressionism which was all about the personal making so uh, Pollock's works um, essentially are just a record of how he made them so that's the end result and they're abstract so he wanted something that's incredibly direct incredibly figurative and not about him uh, as such so not about his own making it didn't matter if he made it or not he thought that the artist actually should be closer to a machine and that would actually generate something more authentic, more universal. So he's responding to uh, the kind of tradition in art history of a glorification of an artist, while at the same time he's sort of glorifying himself yeah. as a commodity. So it's sort of yeah, always there, contradictory. And there's a lot of a lot of conceptual as a big conceptual aspect to what he's doing with something as simple as a soup tin or as simple as a coke bottle. But there was a, a section in the in the first episode. It's Amy Tobin and Jared Melania are in this. They're talking about his Mar- about uh, Warhol's Marilyn Monroe portrait. And how that became part of his brand. It's very interesting how he he took this one picture and, you know, manipulated the image several different times over the the period of his career. Let's have a listen to the clip. Whether they would continue to have presence if you nearly obliterated all the features, if you lessened the contrast, if you heightened the contrast, where was the presence located? The language of transformation was something that Andy felt very comfortable with. And he seemed to know what he was doing in terms of wanting to take something and turning it into something else. It is possible that in making the Marilyns and making her into a brand, he was able to then make himself into a brand. It's a very interesting idea that a person in themselves could be a brand. A clip once again from Andy Warhol's America, Jess Fahey watching it first. And that is, there you have it, that whole idea of of branding. And it's very much the language of advertising that we're hearing again. Absolutely. And in many ways, a sort of precursor of what we're so used to today with influencers and, you know, all the kind of Mm. Instagram stars and all that sort of thing. But the thing with the Marilyn image that's so interesting is that he chose an image of her at the height of her career. So it's a publicity still from Niagara film that she made. Um, But yet he's using this image just shortly after her death in 1962. So he's sort of picking a moment where she's at this sort of moment of perfection but then he flattens the image he edits it down he changes the colours and one commentator said that she kind of looks like a kind of painted corpse you know the kind of purple tones of the skin Um, and in in sort of taking her at this sort of perfect moment when she herself was being used as a commodity for selling things he then takes that and turns it into an artwork doing the same thing he's making a comment on image itself in in the process of doing so the first episode uh, is called The American Dream Mm -hmm. the second episode was called the American Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the third episode is called Life After Death. 
Um, do we get into the factory and all of that period in his career as well? I presume that comes into the second episode, does it? It does, yes, yeah. So the factory essentially was his studio, but it was this creative space entirely covered in silver, so sometimes called the silver factory, where some of the most interesting kind of bohemian or arty characters would mm. come and spend time. And quite often he would just set up cameras and just record them. And he liked the idea of chance within an artwork. So he would, you know, put some women in uh, like a, a bathtub and just leave them there and let the you know, camera happened. keep rolling. But you said you put in one of the things that you found interesting was how separate he was yes. from all the action, if you like. Yeah. So he has this interesting kind of characteristic from the time of being a sick young child that he didn't like um, physical touch and he tended mm. to draw people to him, but not actually be very close to them and much preferred to just watch from a distance. But the subjects didn't realise that they weren't his friends and it leads to some oh. awkward things later. This sounds like it was a it was a, a series of documentaries that you, you're really recommending. Yes, Jess. it's fantastic. And, <laughs> yeah. and you look at that Warhol? Uh, yeah, I think no. so. Yeah, no. yeah. OK, that's Jess Fahey talking to us about Andy Warhol's America. It's on BBC Two tomorrow night at 9pm, part one. You're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena. Theatre critic Lynn Gardner called Every Brilliant Thing one of the funniest plays you'll ever see about depression and possibly one of the funniest plays you'll ever see full stop. That was in response to a production at the Edinburgh Festival of 2014 written by English playwright and director Duncan Macmillan and originally featuring an Irish performer called Johnny Donoghue. Every Brilliant Thing is about a family where a parent attempts suicide and a child who creates a list of brilliant things that make life worth living. Now, directed by Andrea Ainsworth and starring Amy Conroy, Every Brilliant Thing is about to get its first Irish production at the Abbey Theatre on the Peacock stage in Dublin. And I'm delighted to be joined this evening by both Andrea and Amy. I I went to the bother of mentioning the original performer there, Amy, which you wouldn't normally say who played the part in the the first production. But this is a different type of play in that respect. It's kind of tailor-made for who are you you reassess it if you like you reshape it for whoever's performing the part maybe explain how your character works or even in fact who even your character is yeah well i think that's really uh, well observed there son because it's quite an unusual piece in that i mean duncan has written such a i say duncan like i know the man but you know duncan <laughs> we're on first names now has written such a beautiful script and it's so taut and perfect but there is room for whomever is playing the character are bringing the audience through this world to kind of navigate it with their own sensibility. And there are, there's a little space within it to maybe riff with the audience or improv or, or just have some fun. Um, and I think that's not only, it's, it's really generous, I suppose, of the writer, but it also makes the piece um, pop off the page and, um, and really alive, actually, which is very exciting mm. yeah, for it, the performer and the audience. The idea is that whatever local references there might be, that you switch them to suit the particular particular place that the the play is being performed, that you switch things like ages around depending on the age of the performer. Won't ask you that one, Amy. (laughs) And and even down to it, this role can be played by a man or a woman, can be played by any gender, in in fact, uh, so that it it should sit on the performer very snugly. But but explain then who who your character is and the character she finds herself in. Well, my char- I'm the central character, I suppose, of the piece. And you see the world and you see the story through my eyes. And I'm telling you basically my story. And I'm telling you my story for you, for the audience. And I kind of feel like the show, and I've yet to do it in front of a full audience. I feel like um, the show becomes the show that it is every night because of the people who are in the audience. You know, it becomes very much um, their show as much as my show. Mm. Uh, And that's why there's such, um, that's why it's just so gorgeous, you know. So the show... I take you on this journey. I'm telling you my story. And tell us and a little bit of tell us a bit little bit of that story. Who is she and the situation she's yeah. in? So you, you, I, uh, you meet me as me at this age, and then I t- I bring you back to when I was um, I suppose younger, and I'm speaking about my mum's uh, suicide attempt or attempts, hmm. and we 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 work up through the ages, and the whole way through it, even though we're dealing with such dark. Um, and and you know tender subjects. There's a buoyancy within it, and there's a humour within it, and um, 
and it kind of trips along. And it's mm. it's it's so it's so strange to be telling a story of sub, such depth, um, in such I suppose a light, uh, honest, beautiful and tender way. And um, yeah, I suppose it's, that it's is that's very funny. Yeah. yeah, it is very funny as I, as I read from that um, Lynn Gardner review and Andrea Andrea Ensworth who you're you're directing the piece. That is the challenge really in this piece, and it is the joy of this piece. It's that balance between clearly very dark, very serious subjects, important subjects, but the the, the real lightness of touch that is that is brought to, that is brought to the script. I, I guess that's the attraction in doing it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary the way it moves, you know, from from one to the other. And, um, you know, and and I think uh, in rehearsing it, you know, we found um, it just, it's a funny thing just that you, 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 you know, there are moments that you pass through which are very poignant and, and very dark. And then you're out of the other side and, and telling the story. So it's both, I mean, it's, you know, I think it manages the two very, very beautifully. And, you know, mm. I think I was very lucky to have Amy um, because she also, you know, manages, can manage the two, you know, very deftly. Mm. I, but I, I suppose that you, you mentioned the rehearsal period there and Amy has touched on it. The, the importance of the audience in this particular play and in this particular script cannot be underestimated in fact and some people will run a thousand miles the minute they hear the words audience participation yeah. um, <laughs> you really you really do Andrea you're, you're depending on the audience to participate and to be part of this whole production yeah we are I mean and, and I guess it's just a, it's you know it's finding another way to talk about an audience being involved in the making of a play because I think that this this really does it with an incredibly light touch. You know, people are made to feel incredibly comfortable. Um, that the participation is light and and easy, and it's making it. It's really this idea that we are making it mm. not just for them, but with them. Yeah, I mean, and that they are, as Amy has said, an integral part of of the making of the story. Um, exactly. And we've had a few, you know, we've had a few small test audiences, <laughs> um, you know, naturally. But, you know, we're, we're dying to get it out in front of a, in front of a, a group of strangers. Exactly. And, and, and yeah, I, mean, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, if I give this example, I think it'll give a perfect, a, a perfect idea of the sort of thing that an audience member has to do. There's a point where you become the father of your character, if you like, and you're talking to the audience member yeah. who's playing you as a young child and all the audience member has to say is why. But exactly, exactly. <laughs> everything and the you know father says, the little <laughs> the, the audience member will say, why, like a child yeah, of seven would do. Yeah. And you know what it is? You know, there's no the weight of it doesn't land. The only weight of it lands on me. The weight of it never lands on one yeah. person in the audience. We really do it collectively. We do it together. Um, so not much is asked of any one person, but a lot is asked of the audience as a whole. And I think that's what makes it so beautiful because it's something we do together. And actually, it's something we elect to do together. Mm. But nobody is ever Nobody's really gonna... made feel uh, the weight of it or feel foolish or embarrassed. That is the antithesis of this show and yeah. that would just never happen. So uh, that's not it. Just uh, to put people's minds. Exactly. <laughs> what we might get a sense of too is, I mean, this gives a sense, I think, of the lightness of touch. Your character does move from the age of seven right through to the age of 17. We see her, you know, when her, oh, her pet dog, her first pet dog has to go to the vet and we all know how sad a situation that is with your pet if the end is nigh, <laughs> as it is in yes. this particular case. And we see her right through um, her heading off to college. We see her falling in love uh, and several different events uh, like that in her life. But all the time she's compiling this list. It's central to the whole idea of the show. Maybe tell us what that list is and, and it might lead you into performing a little section for us. I will, of course, yeah. So, I mean, the whole piece hangs together on this list and it's a list of brilliant things. Uh, it's a list of everything worth living for. And my character started at a very young age in, a, in an attempt, in a beautiful childish attempt to try and, and show her mom or offer her mom things to stay alive for. So it starts, it's very innocent and gorgeous, but it starts in a real attempt to try to do something. And in a sense, it's offered... Um, as a thing to save her man, but it ends up kind of being the thing that saves me. Uh, and it's uh, and 
she I think she can nearly mark her life off in stages of the list. And it's also how we journey our way, journey our way through the show. So I'm going to do a little bit. Um, and this is this happens around the time that my character falls in love for the first mm. time. So it's quite frantic and it's quite excited and fast and new. Um, so um, I'll just give you a lash. <laughs> I go straight into it. Yeah. So I wrote late into the night. Uh, 1,427, not worrying about how much money you're spending on holiday because all international currency looks like monopoly money. I wanted to get to 2,000 and I kept writing as the sun came up. 1,657, Christopher Walken's hair. 1,655, Christopher Walken's voice. So much to include that my hand cramped up. 1,857, planning a declaration of love. My morning alarm went, but I'd not slept. I passed 2,000, coffee, with 2,001 films that are uh, that are better than the books they're adapted from and i kept going 2002 seeing someone make it onto the train just as the doors are closing making eye contact and sharing in this little victory 2003 this song especially the drums on this track the single ends at around four minutes but the album version continues for another five minutes and has the most insane drums in fact 2004. Any song with an extended drum break involving a full kit, bongos and cowbell. Ha- Sean, have you heard I'm a Man by Chicago? And never mind, it doesn't matter. 2005, I'm a Man by Chicago. 2006, <laughs> vinyl records. I am not being pretentious, Sean. The sound quality is better. It isn't compressed and it's tactile. You get to feel the weight of it in your hands. You can't skip like with CDs or MP3s. You listen through to the entire album. Dad's room had records on every surface and I loved the gatefold sleeves, the artwork. I love reading through the acknowledgements and the sleeve notes, the story of the making of the object. The next morning, I took the list and I ran to the library and Sam and I kissed for the very first time. Lovely and stuff. that's all you're getting. <laughs> yeah, that, that's plenty to be going on with. That's Amy Conroy with a section there from every, from every brilliant thing. And I suppose within that, Amy, you give us a real sense of the type of way you would, you, you're, even though you're uh, just finishing up in rehearsals in the Abbey, um, you, you, you address that directly to me and in the way that you will address the audience and the type of participa- participation you'll be expecting from the audience, that gives us a sense of that as well as you just did it. Yeah, just that I see you and you see me. You don't necessarily have to do anything, but we're all in the room together and that's why the show is so special mm. because everybody who's in the audience is uh, is supposed to be there and 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 are imperative to it and yeah we all do it together yeah it did strike me however andrea and wonder did you have to make uh, adjustments given for inevitably we come around to the situation we're in with covid and with the way i know you'll have your certain restrictions on audience numbers etc cetera, etc cetera. but there is a, a kind of a potential physical interaction between members of the audience and amy as the character did you have to adjust things slightly to fit in with you know the current um, guidelines we are adjusting. We are adjusting slightly. As you know, we're we're at sort of a fifty percent audience at the moment, so we're um, you know we're sticking to that. Um, you know, we're we're conscious of of proximity um, and of masks. So the audience, we're asking the audience to stay in masks the whole time. Um, you know, Amy has her antigen tests all the time. So we're doing everything we can to you know to keep to keep it safe and to keep you know to keep distance. Uh, you know, between people as we, mm. as we do it, and you know, we've we so we've re- rehearsed with that with that in in mind. Yeah. Um, and I guess more so than any other play you will ever have done, Amy. This is one that you need to get in front of an audience to really get a feel of it. Yeah, and I can't wait to be honest. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, best of luck to Amy, um, O'Conroy there, and indeed to Andrea uh, Ainsworth for the in that production of Every Brilliant Thing. It's at the Peacock on the Peacock stage of the Abbey Theatre. 6pm each day, Monday to Saturday, matinee at 2pm from the 10th through to the 22nd of January and subsequent tours to the Solstice Arts Centre in Navan, Dritted Arts Centre in Drogheda, Glore in Ennis, Garter Lane in Waterford, Backstage Theatre in Longford, McLally Theatre in Galway throughout the months of January and February. But that is our lot for this Wednesday evening here on Arena. Leah Murphy and Paula Shields Research. Janice Murphy was the Broadcast Coordinator. Pather Carney was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Olin McGon. I will be back with you as usual tomorrow night 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 movie reviews tomorrow night and among the movies we'll be reviewing Boiling Point 355 and Ailey will be in store for you